our listeners and our viewers, you could tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, where you're based, and then I'd like to understand how you got into the sales business. Well, thanks for having me on, Paul. Uh, so I am based in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Uh, so the center of the oil and gas industry in Canada. And I got into sales purely by accident. I was the sports editor, a weekly newspaper in New Westminster, British Columbia, which is a suburb of Vancouver. And the uh, advertising sales manager left, took another job. And I was 19 and they said, hey, wanna do this? You can make a bunch of extra money. And all I heard was you can make a bunch of extra money. I didn't hear about the prospecting or any of that kind of stuff. And so I jumped in with two feet and I've been in sales ever since. Okay, so maybe you could tell me a little bit then about those early lessons, what your, your experience was in those early years, what Hamish looked like when he was going out talking to prospects. Ugly, 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 ugly. Uh, it, it, was, it was a lot of stumbling. It was a lot of uh, failure, fail, failing forward. Uh, a lot of success by default instead of by design. I, I just banged on every door I could, cold called everybody I could. And, you know, it, eventually the blind squirrel finds a nut, I think is the cliche. So uh, I, I happened to find a bunch of nuts because I, uh, I ran around like a blind squirrel chasing everything I could. Sounds familiar. So tell me then, at some stage on that journey, you had a turning point when the penny dropped and you thought to yourself, you know, this isn't working out for me the way I'd like it to work. It's, I'm leaving things to chance. Mm. Tell me about that moment or about that realization. Where were you? How did it come about? Sure. And, and I was a journalist. I mean, originally I, I, I started a uh, writing for the weekly newspaper in my hometown when I was 16. So, you know, as I, as I like to say, I went from the dark side from journalism to PR and then I went from the darker side from PR to sales. And then now Adam, a sales trainer, I don't know what I am anymore, but I, I think I'm in the, you know, you can't even see the light coming through anymore. And what happened was uh, I was taking a night class um, at the British Columbia Institute of Technology and it was an elective on sales. I was doing a marketing diploma, but I had to take a sales course. And I went, oh my God, because I had all the I had all the head trash about salespeople, right? They're slimy and evil and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And the teacher was the former national sales manager for RJR Tobacco, you know, back when it was okay to sell cigarettes. Yeah. And he told he instilled in me that sales could be a career, it could be a profession. And you know, David Sandler says that about you know how sales is an honorable profession. And that was the moment where I was like, yeah, this could be a thing that I could do for my life. I really like sales. I like talking to people. I like learning about people. And that's where, the, that's where I turned the corner and actually started succeeding by design and leaving, leaving things less to chance. So what is it that you started to do differently that helped you do that by design? I started getting out of my own way and I started listening to my prospect instead of going in and talking about how awesome I was and how awesome the companies I worked for were. Okay. And so that's simple. It, it was really that simple. It became a conversation as opposed to, Oh my God, Paul, I'm so glad you let me into your office for five minutes. Let me give you the fastest download you've ever heard. And at the end, I'm going to show you a contract that you can press hard and the third copy is yours. Okay. Well, if that was the answer though, to being really at the top of your profession, you wouldn't have needed to implement any changes since that realization. And I'm going to take a stab in the dark here and say, yeah, you know, that was the catalyst that started yeah. things off. 
but that a lot has happened in your professional life since change totally. made. Maybe you could tell me a little bit about those. Sure. And, and what it came down to for me was learning and reading more about human behavior and really the brain. Um, I'm a bit of a neuroscience nerd and I'm actually teaching a class on, uh, on how to coach with your employees' brains in mind. And that really struck me as a way to improve my relationships and improve the way I was selling. I'm an introvert. Uh, I, when I go to a networking event, the first place I stop afterwards is to get a hamburger because I'm brain dead and I need to refuel. Um, so the, the sort of light, you know, uh, casual interactions don't come naturally to me. And so I needed to understand how do my prospects think? How do they behave? What are they looking for? And if I can be what they are looking for instead of what I think they are looking for, hmm. then I can be much more effective. Um, and then the other thing was making the phone calls. Uh, my last sales manager, we were with a prospect, I think it was the fourth or fifth meeting, and they were just stonewalling us. And, and, my, prospect, and my sales manager looked at the prospect and said, you do understand Hamish is a wolf and you're the deer. And he's running you down and you're running real hard right now, but you got to understand eventually he's going to, he's going to catch you. And the prospect's looking at me like, where is this going? And I'm looking at my manager like, we didn't script this. Like, what are you trying to do? You're blowing this up right now. And, uh, and that was the other side of it is once I got my mind into doing something, whether it was opening up a new door or selling a new product, I went and did it. I put together a plan and I went and did it. Right. So that's something though, is in terms of your core personality type, that must be something endemic as in, if you go back years and years and years, yeah. how did I guess that that characteristic was there? Well, I grew up on a farm. Okay. And when you grow up on a farm, you know, you may not feel, feel like feeding the animals, the animals need to be fed. Gotcha. So, so discipline is a big part of my life. So for people who didn't grow up on a farm, <laughs> what advice would you have for them? Because I, I recognize this, which is my life would be a whole lot better if only I did what I said I was going to do. <laughs> Fair point. Which, which, which sounds to me like accountability, which perhaps dovetails nicely because I know you've written a book on accountability. Yes. I, I see you as an expert on this. Help me and help those who are not good at holding themselves accountable. They're not good at, you know, the Nike bit, just do it. Just do it, yeah. My, my, uh, my coach uh, calls it fanatical discipline. That's what he, he said uh, I have is fanatical discipline. And, and really that's, that's the key thing. So in my first six months in Sandler, I made 5,000 cold calls. Uh, and that was either speaking with or leaving a voicemail for a decision maker. So if I called up, hey, is Paul around? No, Paul's on vacation for two weeks. I'll take his voicemail. Uh, he doesn't have voicemail. I'll leave a message. That didn't count. So I made between 9,000 and 15,000 dials of the phone in the first six months I was with Sandler. Okay, well I had 5,000 cups of coffee, so <laughs> in the middle somewhere between that and, 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 and my 5,000. Well, and, and I'm not saying that to, 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 to pump my own, my own tires, but it's the, it's the accountability and it's the chunking down of things. So, you know, it, it would, like we tell our clients, what's the best way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. And so I didn't set out to make 5,000 cold calls. That was the end result of every day saying, I'm going to make this many cold calls. And once I hit it, 
you probably already figured out, Paul, I'm kind of competitive. So I would say, okay, great. I've hit my target. Let me see if I can do three more or six more or 12 more before I finish off my day. Um, so I have some hardwiring that, that helps. I no problem admitting that, but it was the, it was the commitment to taking small steps forward every day that got me to where to got me to that 5,000. Because if I set out to make 5,000 cold calls, I probably would have gone and had 5,000 cups of coffee instead. Cause that would have been way too overwhelming. Okay. I, I still need some tips then on, let's talk about the daily stuff because it's very easy. We've all done it. Sunday evening, you're, you're, yep. you're pumped and you're going, tomorrow I'm going to make those 20 phone calls. Totally. And then Monday morning you come in and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it 20? Yeah, 20. I'm going to make 20. <laughs> but first a cup of coffee. And then yeah, you do get around to it. It's two or three and you feel good and then you stop. Yep. You know you should do it. You know you should be doing it. Yep. You don't do it. If it's not in you, how do you find it? So first thing you said is about Sunday evening. And, and this is where I see a lot of my clients go sideways, at least it, when we first start working together, is all they're doing is thinking about the week ahead instead of actually putting a plan in place. And everything you read about successful people, doesn't matter which type of success, everyone sits down on Sunday and spends a dedicated period of time planning their week and actually writing it down. Because as soon as you write something down, you're committed to it. And that's why a lot of people don't write down their goals is because they, they don't want to be committed to it. Mm -hmm. So number one is write, write it down. It makes it more committed. Number two is, um, and there's a cliche that, that uh, goes along with this, but the best way to get over a bad prospecting call is to get on another one. So yeah, you make the three or four, like you said, and you stop because while well, an email popped up or maybe you had a bad call, the thing that drove me forward was always pick up the phone, pick up the, pick up the phone because my belief, and this goes back to when I was, before I even got uh, in the Sandler was, 20 seconds after that bad prospecting call, the only person who's thinking about that call is me. So why am I burning my mental and emotional energy on someone who has completely forgotten about me? Because as soon as you hang up the phone, Paul, I was just another sales guy who banged on your door. You've moved on. So why shouldn't I move on? So that would be the key lesson for the, for the listeners and the viewers is, you know, if you have a negative experience on a prospecting call, you know, someone hangs up on you or someone yells at you or whatever, hang up. Give yourself 20 seconds, go for a walk, whatever, and then come back, pick up the phone because there's someone waiting for your call. And that was another belief I had even before I got in the Sandler is there's someone who is waiting for my call. And if I am doing them a disservice if I don't make that dial. Okay. So I think that once you get into the habit, once you get over that head trash, as you called it, get a momentum. Yeah. What you're saying will carry you forward. Mm -hmm. I think it's like a rocket trying to get out of the Earth's gravitational pull, that it requires those extra booster rockets. True. Once it's left the Earth's atmosphere, it it yep. has trajectory, right? So think of that as habit. Absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about the role of accountability partners play in being those booster rockets, because I, I I'll tell you from my perspective, without a yeah. partner, it doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. And it's, it's why Weight Watchers works. It's not the diet having to stand on the scales, that public accountability. So talk to me a little bit about that. Have you used that? Have you done that? Have you 
recommended it to others? How does it work? And I'm really glad you brought that up. I was, uh, that was where I was going to go next is if you look at anything like Weight Watchers or exercise programs, the the people who stick with them have a buddy, they have an accountability partner. Uh, And so absolutely, I've been in multiple accountability groups within Sandler. Uh, and I have clients in my room who have become accountability partners with each other because they speak the same language. And so I encourage every one of my clients to find a buddy, get a buddy, um, and but put some structure to it because it can't become a pity party. And there's been a couple of instances where uh, my clients w- started an accountability partnership and one half of the accountability partnership uh, very quickly started ducking their accountability. So come, come Friday, they would have their call and it'd be like, Hey, you, you know, here's what I did this week. What have you done? Oh man, stuff came up. I got busy. I got this, I got that. And the other half, and they're both clients of mine started to get mad. And I said, well, you have to walk away at that point. Cause if someone's not going to be accountable, then you're just wasting your time. And then it becomes again, mental and emotional energy drain. So the key thing with an accountability partnership is it has to be set up from the beginning with who's going to do what and who's going to report on what, but also what are the consequences? And that's what everyone forgets about accountability is if there are not consequences, there cannot be any accountability because without consequences, who cares? I just didn't do my stuff. So what kind of consequences do you recommend? Is it just, Hey, listen, you didn't do it. Shame on you. Or is there something more consequential deeper than that? Sure. Uh, so for a lot of my clients, it's the person who failed on their accountability buys the beer. I mean, that's, that's, that's oftentimes what, what happens, but in a corporate environment, uh, what, what I wrote about in the book is an accountability ladder because most people are trained to hear consequences as you're fired, right? Hamish, you didn't, you didn't hit your targets for the week. Get out. Well, that's really stupid. Uh, because you hired me for a reason. I'm theoretically good at what I do and it costs a lot of money to replace me. So eventually their termination has to be a a consequence, but you know, let's start with things like verbal warnings, written warnings. Uh, You know, in some cases where we have clients who have shift work, uh, the person who doesn't hit their, their, their accountability for the week has to work an extra shift the following week, things like that. And you can also step down off the accountability ladder because you never want to be up at a certain level and think, oh, great, if I miss it next week, I'm going to be fired. That's not going to help create a productive work environment. So you need to give people the ability to step off. But also, if they're really not going to be a good fit, let them step up all the way and let them self-select. Yeah. I'm thinking also in, 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 this, in, in terms of trap exercises to mm. help us be more accountable. I'll give you an example of a client of mine years ago. He wanted to leave his job and start his own business. And he wasn't quite ready. And, and I don't think that was an excuse. And genuinely, there were certain things he needed to put in place. Sure. He was technically ready to hand in his resignation. But I'll always remember, he sent me uh, two envelopes. Uh, one of them was a letter to me. Mm-hmm. And the other one was dressed to his boss. And the letter to me said, Dear Paul, I'd like you to post this for me on the date was three months from, from the date. Sure. Uh, and he says, if I come to you begging, pleading, screaming not to do it, you're to ignore me. You're to post this on this date. Yep. I thought that was a really, really good way of holding himself accountable. Yeah, did he pass that to me? Mm-hmm. He needed my help. Yep. But, but what ended up was, 
he didn't even need it in the end because he left his job. He was ready yeah. maybe a few weeks in advance and he didn't actually need it, but he knew it was going to be posted. So I think totally. he wanted to be in control of the process rather than be out of control. Uh, but I thought it was ballsy and I thought, you know, as, as a trap exercise, is, is that something you see a lot in terms of helping people be more accountable? Especially for the people who will, who will do things like beg and plead, please don't do that. Uh, so there, there's a number of websites out there that will, uh, will essentially do monetary penalties. Uh, and, and there's one that I recommend to a lot of my clients that has essentially three options. One is the financial penalty goes to you. So I say, I'm going to do, I'm going to run a marathon by the end of next year. Mm. And if I don't run the marathon by the end of next year, Paul gets a thousand pounds. Okay. Sounds good. Uh, the second option is a charity gets the money. So I get to pick my favorite charity. And then the third option, which a lot of my clients, uh, like is an anti-charity. Yes. Yes. So, so examples, maybe some political, whatever, whatever side of the divide you might be on. Yeah. Somebody on the other side. Flip, turn the opposite. Whatever, whatever you are completely against, they're going to get a thousand pounds if you don't run that marathon by the end of next year. And I've had several clients who have done that. Highly, highly motivating uh, to, to keep to their accountability. I bet it is because the charity thing to me wouldn't work because I write it on this. Look, it's charity. Somebody's getting something good. Totally. But uh, that last one I do like. Yeah. Yeah. So I do like the traps. I'm a very big guy on trap exercises. Uh, one of the, what, what, uh, one of the things I coach a lot on is if this, then that. So, so if I call Paul, who is a client of mine, I will call Susan, who is a prospect of mine. Okay. And a client of mine actually came to me. They were uh, essentially a farmer, right? They were an account manager, uh, but they, they were given responsibility to bring in new business. And they came to me and said, listen, Hamish, I hate prospecting. Blinding mm. passion. I just, it makes me uncomfortable. If I know the person, I got no problem. Upsell, cross-sell, doesn't matter. But net new scares the heck out of me. He said, fair enough. Here's your trap. One call to a client means three calls to prospects. I like it. So and they yeah. they doubled their book of business in eighteen months. Wow. Okay. I could I, yeah I could see that working. Yeah. Again, now accountability is important to it as well. So uh, well, yeah, they, they had to be they had to be accountable. So so our buzzword in Sandler is a cookbook, right? It's a behavior plan. How many of certain things you're going to do? And then so we had the cookbook of, and if it did, if it wasn't a one to three ratio of client calls to prospect calls, well then they were out of accountability. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Love it. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, actually, hang on a second. Uh, there, was a, there was another question I had. I'll come back to it, Amish. Uh, so, Amish, that leads me nicely then to your second book, which is all about change. Yes. Uh, what prompted you to write that? Well, Paul, I like to write books on topics no one likes to talk about. Okay. <laughs> Tell me more. My first one was on accountability. My second one's on change. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm really, uh, uh, I really love the human animal, uh, the, you know, the brain, the behavior and all that. And, and change is one of those things, uh, you know, people fear death taxes and change mm -hmm. and change is one of those things that especially, you know, it used to be change happened on occasion. Now change happens, you know, every minute, every day, every hour, every day. And, we don't set up our 
lives to be able to effectively manage change. We, we're creatures of comfort. We like to be in our nice little comfort zone. And especially in organizations and corporations, uh, leaders are typically unprepared for that human animal to not behave in the way that they, in their magic plan, expect them to when they roll out whatever change they're doing, whether it's a new benefits package or a new compensation package, a CRM or moving offices. Uh, and so that was really the purpose behind the book is to give leaders tools to say, okay, the, the change itself is like a light switch, right? You're, you're in this office today, you're going to be in that office by the end of next month, but you've got all these squishy emotional things called human beings who need to actually execute on that change. You need to be prepared for all of the things that are going to happen after you say we're moving. Makes sense. So tell me that, how does the, the, what people would learn from the book, how does it help them then with prospects? Because I also believe that when we help organizations in a B2B context, sure. that they're implementing some form of change in their organization when they bring us in and go looking for what we sell. Totally. I'm wondering, so, so in effect, they're going through a change process and mm -hmm. you have some of them who are at the denial phase, some are at the exploration of options, some are resisting. So how would what people would learn in the book help as a seller help their prospects go through that process? That's a really great question. One of the topics in our sales mastery program is no matter what you sell, you are selling change mm. because, you know, to, to use your product instead of my product, our prospect has to change from their status quo. So the, what our, our selling clients will learn out of change the Sandler way is how to manage that, what we call transition, right? Change is external, right? It's either you're here today, you're in this office today, you're in us. Transition is internal. So it's how to manage the emotions that their prospects are going to feel, which is denial and resistance and exploration and, and finally acceptance. Mm -hmm. And the, you know, the denial phase comes up when you make the prospecting call, you know, Hey Paul, it's Hamish calling. No, we're good. We're, we're happy. We're fine. So I met so many happy people since I joined sales. You know, you hear about how, how people are unhappy, the world's unhappy. And then as soon as you get into sales, everyone's happy. Uh, so it's, it's, it's giving our clients the tools to support their prospects through that transition and ultimately to the acceptance that going with our client's product is better uh, or more effective than staying with the status quo or using a competitor. Okay, that makes sense. Um, what about then when it applies to us? Because you mentioned about change, about changing office, changing CRM. Mm -hmm. But if we are going to now start holding ourselves accountable, yeah, one of the things we don't want to do, yeah, you're going to get certain results. That's going to have external results, but it's going to impact how we think and how we feel, how totally. we prospects. How can we use again the learnings here to mm -hmm. help us through that process? Another great question, and and it really comes down to planning. We talked about the Sunday planning a little bit earlier and, and it's really about not trying to keep everything up in your head because as long as it stays in your head, your brain's going to change it, right? The brain is wired to be negative because no matter where we are in the city that we live in and all the technology we have, our brains are still wired to be back wherever human beings came from. Wherever you believe human beings came from, our brains are still there. And back then, change typically meant you died. 
mm-hmm. or you went hungry and then you died. So your belly was either more or less full, but you were still dead. So when, when we're looking at, at change and personal change, we need to start writing things down. And that's where journaling comes in because you are going to have a lot of thoughts and feelings about, well, I really don't want to do this. And you need to have those written down because once it's written down, your brain can deal with the information rationally instead of emotionally. So highly recommend to all of our clients that they, that they start journaling and journaling about the feelings they're having, the emotions they're having, because then they can deal with them rationally. And also going back to that, getting the buddy and, and sharing your plan for change with the people in your life. Because what you'll find is the people in your life like you where you are. And when you say, you know what, I'm going to start running a marathon or I'm going to lose weight or I'm going to transit, I'm going to launch my own business. I'm going to go out as an entrepreneur. There are a lot of people in your life, particularly people who you think have got your back through thick and thin, who are going to say, Paul, that's kind of nuts. Like, what are you doing, man? Like you're, because they get their emotional and mental needs met by keeping you here. So what you will find is you're going to have some people leave your life when you go through change. And an exercise that we do is to write down the first names of everybody in your life who you consider to be close to you, mm-hmm. and then put a check mark next to the people who you believe are gonna support you, and an X next to the people who you believe are going to hold you back or leave your life. And that's an uncomfortable exercise. It is a really uncomfortable exercise, and, and you, I don't say lose the people out of your life because you don't lose people who are holding you back. And it is a really uncomfortable exercise. But then what I say as a follow-up is this is your data, not theirs. So just because you put an X next to my name does not mean that I'm not going to support you. That means you need to come to me and say, Hey, Hamish, I'm going to go out on my own as an entrepreneur. What do you think? And I might say, Oh my God, Paul, that's amazing. I'm so happy for you. How can I support you? Well, that X just very quickly got changed to a check mark. Makes sense. Uh, Amish, I know that you, you, you said at the, the top of our interview that psychology is a, is a real interest area to you. Yes. So I, I don't know if you know this, so I'm going to throw you a little bit of a curveball here. So sure. I'm ready to catch. I don't know if you know this, but Freud said this about the Irish. He said that the Irish are the one race on the planet whereby the norms and rules of psychoanalysis does not work. <laughs> that, that, that's a real quote i'm not making that up i have not heard that one thank you for yeah, telling me so you can go so <laughs> so so it's in that context sure i i have this journal that i have and again it was i, I interviewed rochelle um carrington mm-hmm. a few days ago and she was talking about habits and mm-hmm. habits are was something traditionally i'd always struggled to form but sure. I got a great tip from her, which was to tag a habit on to an existing habit. Yes. So every morning I like to have a coffee. So sure. what I do now is I make sure that I, I, I'm not allowed, there's the rule, but maybe mm-hmm. first have my coffee unless I've got my journal open in front of me. And I found mm-hmm. it really easy to develop that habit as a result. Yeah. Uh, and you said something similar with the if-then uh, yes. sort of rule base. And... I, I, this only happened to me just this morning. So now it's a, it's a, it's a, it's from a company called Best Self. 
Okay. I, I came across it online. It's a beautiful journal. Uh, it's, it's, it's what I say, pre-scripted. It has a part for your day. It has mm -hmm. what your goal is, what your three things you want to hit today, lessons learned at the end of the day. Cool. It, it's good. And it has the three things I'm grateful for at the start of the day and again at the end of the day. Awesome. But one of the things has uh, my wins. So in, in, in reflecting back on the day, it has my wins. And, and, and I used to start to look for anything that I would regard as a win. Sure. Something happened, a conversation I made that I didn't want to make, et cetera, et cetera. This morning I looked at it and I'm going, you know what? A win was I woke up this morning. I woke up in a Western democracy. And it kind of spoiled it for me a little bit. I'll tell you why. Because I felt that I was looking for the wins. And when, and when I didn't find something that happened as a win, I felt like, I felt bad. Hmm. And, I, and I, I, I found myself reframing. And I said, you know what? The hell whether I did or didn't, that I woke up this morning. First of all, that's, that's super cool. I woke up this morning. Yeah. And, 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 and better still, when you look at what we have, when, when you work, or sorry, when you live in, in, in an open democracy, mm -hmm. where you have choice and freedom, just you win the lotto every single day. And, and so it, it, it kind of took the power of the, that, that journal entry away in one sense, mm. because when you globalize it like that, where's the incentive? Okay. Well, other than being in, in a permanent state of gratitude, which is a good thing. Absolutely. But then you maybe there's a risk of losing the competitiveness. Mm. I was wondering something. And I, by the way, when I said about the Freud thing, I was really giving you a way out because you thought, <laughs> really, that only applies to the Irish Freud. Himself. <laughs> so, <laughs> I, was, I was leaving the door open for you. But I was just wondering what advice would you have for me to somebody who maybe overthinks their journal? Yeah. Uh, we'll write something like this happened to me where I wrote in yesterday, three things I need to accomplish today. Uh, I did that yesterday morning. And then when I look back on it last night, I had to tell them I went off and did something else that I, I felt like doing. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, I think you just, you sound like my doctor when he goes, mm, I can see you. you've got a terminal case of <laughs> screwed. Well, I do the, I do the opposite thing, Paul is, is I do, I do something similar every night. I do, uh, I, I write in a, I have a book and it, and it's called my commitment journal. And right. so every day before I go to bed, I write down five commitments and an affirmation of what's going to happen tomorrow. Okay. And so today, you know, this interview was on, it was on that list, but what I've really had to learn is I got a little too aspirational in my commitment. So like, I'll give you an example. When I was writing my, my second book on change, one of my commitments was write a chapter in change the Sandler way. Right. Now I have two small children at home and this was during a business day. So I had training, I had prospecting, I had client meetings to do. I have two small kids at home. I have a wife at home and yet I was going to write a chapter in a book. Yeah. And it was essentially, a, and I, what I realized was it was a way of self-flagellation. It was a way of beating myself up. And so what I've had to learn to do is if I put something on there that's a little too aspirational, right? It's a good mountaintop, but maybe need to break it down a little bit. I give myself permission to fail. Okay. Yeah. I like that. So, so, so maybe then, because one of the areas in the, the journal I have is lessons learned. Mm -hmm. and what I found myself doing more and more is... You go easier on yourself. Forgive. Yeah. It, it's okay. It's 
if you didn't get it done, you get it done yeah. tomorrow. Now that's a fine line between using that as totally. an excuse. Totally. To kind of keep your headspace. Okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But baby steps is the key thing. Baby steps on the way up the mountain. Right. Baby, baby steps. So, you know, I'm not going to write a chapter. I'm going to write a page. Okay. A page is realistic. Okay. So, so here's a question because I, I, I if you're highly disciplined, and I, my wife is highly disciplined and that she's very good at holding herself accountable. Uh, mm -hmm. So kind of reminding me of what you said earlier about just, sure. just do it. Uh, and because I work for myself, there are no spiffs or compensations, you yep. know, plans in place. And, and, and I'm just wondering, I, I, I get the writing a check for the political party you don't support. I'm wondering what impact the, the, the external motivation has because you, know, you and I have both said it many times that external motivation is not the best type of motivation that it has to be internal. Absolutely. So I, I guess I'm, I'm coming around to the question, how effective can external motives be? Mm. Particularly if they're your own and you say, I am going to buy this if I do that. Fair enough. Fair enough. And, and what I, what I've learned, and this comes from one of our colleagues uh, who talks about pain motivation versus pleasure motivation. Uh, and that's, that's what I've discovered with, with external is it really comes down to, are you pain motivated? Or are you pleasure motivated? And so for me, I am pain motivated. I'm highly pain motivated. Um, but I also like cookies. So my, uh, my, my, my reward to myself for doing my behaviors is I get a cookie, but I am pain motivated in that when I set up an external motivator, it tends to be a, a, a negative, right? I don't get the cookie, but I've had to learn how to translate external into internal and kids are great for that, right? Family is great for that. Uh, you know, when, when I got, uh, when I was engaged, I was, I had a lot of debt. I had a lot of student debt and things like that. And one of my commitments to myself was I do not want to bring debt into our marriage. And so I was in sales at the time and I went and looked at my compensation plan and I figured out that I could basically double my base salary with my variable compensation. And, but I went to my, my fiance and I said, you know, here's what I can do. And we're planning a wedding. So we have extra commitments. Uh, but I have to do these extra things, work late, go out to a bunch of networking events. Now she was doing her master's at the time. So she had other commitments and so it was okay. But I ended up tripling my base salary that year and I wiped out all of my personal debt. Nice. And so it was at the, yes. so it was an external motivator, but I turned it in into an internal, which was, I don't want to bring debt into my marriage. I think what you did was smart as well, because when, when you get into that situation where you're going to be working extra hard, that a, 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 a relationship mm -hmm. which is important to, to, to keep that alive is important to have that conversation that says, look, this is temporary and here's why that yeah, is exactly that is for both that you can absolutely and say it's for six months, it's for a year and then yeah. this will happen. I think the mistake some people make is just they don't communicate that and then they go, totally. I'm doing it for you, honey. <laughs> yeah after all the emotions or all the negative emotions yeah, are coming yeah. out and you know there's a there's a societal construct at least it is you know in, in north america where one half of a partnership it's usually the female half has to put aside their goals to support the other yeah 
And one of the things that I coach my clients on is when we do our goal setting exercise is sit down with your spouse, have them do the goal setting exercise separately or your spouse, partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, and then come together and have a conversation. Because if you two are going in completely the opposite directions, wouldn't you like to know that now as opposed to like nine months from now when all, the, all this emotional energy is spent trying to save a relationship that's not going to be saved? Or on the positive side, wouldn't you like to know what each other wants out of life, relationship, and you can both support each other going forward? And feedback from clients is one of the most powerful discussions they, they have had with their partner and it puts them in a much stronger place in their relationship because both of them now know what the other is trying to accomplish and how they can support each other going forward. Yeah, I like it. It's starting with the why rather than the what. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I think inadvertently as well, you've given me an idea that just might help me uh, with okay. my accountability issue, which is you said about being pain or pleasure motivated. And I, mm -hmm. I like you, I'm pain motivated. If there isn't a fire under my ass, if I'm not on a burning platform, I'm just yep. sitting, go for another coffee. I'm totally. So, but I also like my toys. Sure. And I, cameras are my, are my thing. Like I, yeah. I, I like good cameras. So I, I have, I don't know, probably five or six at the moment, which is crazy. How many do you right? And uh, so what I, and, and, and there's one in the, one on its way. And oh, so wow. now, now I've set myself a rule. Five only, so I have to sell one just to make room. <laughs> However, I was thinking of this because if I say, "Look, if I achieve this, I'll go buy that nice new camera." Sure. Uh, do you know what? I'll just go out and buy the damn thing anyway, mm. right? But if I said, "Okay, here's this camera I really love. I'm putting that on eBay on the first of December if mm. I happened." Ah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to lose it. I want to hold on to it. They're my babies. Totally. Yeah. And I just think that that just might right Now, maybe I need somebody to help me do that. If somebody else takes it and puts it away, I, yeah. I need to put that piece out. Yeah. But I think, yeah. Or, or maybe I give myself permission to keep it. So I need to figure it out. But I, there has to be, I think if you're going to be motivated, you, you have to connect your, those internal, external motives with how you're motivated, whether that's pleasure totally. or, or pain. Totally. Because I remember back when I was working in, in, a, in an organization and when they'd set the compensation scheme, you know, if you get X number of demos, you, the, you know, this payment will kick in and you close that, that will kick in. It had zero effect on me. It really had zero effect on me. You know, yeah. getting an attaboy from my boss was far more powerful. Yeah. And, and not being at the bottom of the ladder, you know, not, you know, when, yeah. when the sales calls came up and having somebody else, cause I'm competitive dude. They were going this, you know, I, I did this this week. Well, how did you do Paul? And if I couldn't say, well, this is what I did and it was better. Uh, I just felt awful. So it, it, it was the pain of the public accountability. Totally. It was a very strong motive, but it was never about the money. So I think you guys got to find what's going to work for you. And I think that's the problem with organizations. It's a one size fits all. And that's, that's where, you know, we're, we're trained in traditional management training is you lead a team or you don't, you lead a group of individuals who have their own hopes, fears, dreams, expectations, motivators, and, and especially in change. One of the things that, that has come up with several of my clients who have gone through change is they've got a core member of their management team 
And that person publicly stands up, supports the change. And then as soon as they're done, walks into the boss's office, and goes, listen, I can't do this. Mm. Like, I get why you're doing it. I totally understand why it's good for the business. I just can no longer be a part of it. And, and that is a huge blow to a lot of the CEOs that we work with is because they're counting on that manager. Mm. And they're a core member of the team, but they, when they don't expect it, and so very similar to the exercise about who are the people who are gonna go out of your life, mm. we coach our, the CEOs we work with when they're gonna do a change is write down all the names of your people, especially at the executive and management levels, and do the X and check mark exercise. And start preparing what happens if that key member of your management team or your leadership team leaves because it's, you're going to be in the middle of a change. The train has left the station and it's hurtling down a hill and you've just had someone jump off who you expected was going to be able to steer that train. And now you've got to find a replacement for them on the fly. And it's much easier to do that if you've prepared for that before, as opposed to in the middle of, in the middle of that change. Well, it, it, it's clear you're an expert on change. So uh, a final question on change. And it's more of an observation really from my side is that when change comes about in an organization, to my mind is those people who are the waving the flag saying, yeah, fantastic. I worry about them the most. How so? That bothers me, as in, to, to what you were saying earlier, there'll be this public declaration of support. Yeah. Behind the scenes, they're often the ones who will try to scupper the change. Yeah. And because they don't want to be seen to be negative, they actually overcompensate by publicly supporting it. Totally. I, I, I much prefer to have that early pushback. Yeah, because to me, that's that's you know, I this change process is denial, resistance, and if I'm not getting that resistance, mm -hmm. it's going, yeah, fantastic. If they're going, yeah, we need to do this, but they ha haven't been through that process, it tells me there's something wrong. And I was wondering, mm -hmm. is it just my, is it am I crazy, or is it that something you've seen? And if so, have you any recommendations for managers who are implementing change? Well, there's a, uh, there's a George Carlin joke about uh, the quiet ones you have to watch. And, and, and that's what you're talking about is, is those people who will publicly stand up, wave the flag, but we're in the business of human behavior and observing human behavior. And so when I'm coaching the leaders I work with on change and change management, it's don't listen to this. Mm. Don't, don't pay attention to this. This is good. This will make you feel good. But what you want to do is watch what happens when they go back to their desks because change is about behavior, right? Mm -hmm. In this office today, we're going to be in this office tomorrow. We don't have a database today. We have a database tomorrow. You need to enter information into, the, into this database in a different way. You need to watch the behavior. And so it's training leaders to not get their emotional needs met by paying attention to the happy words that are coming out of their employee's mouth. It's letting them say, okay, that's good. Thank you for the, you know, thank you for the stroke. Um, but then going, watching what happens when they go back to their desk and are they subtly sabotaging the change through essentially doing nothing. Uh, when I worked for, before I got in the Sandler, we had a company, uh, the, the company I worked for, they totally changed the compensation plan. 
And there were a couple of individuals on the team I worked for who kept going with the same behavior that worked for them under the old compensation plan, mm. which wasn't actually to their benefit. But shockingly, the following year when they got their bonus checks, wasn't their fault. Mm. It was the leader's fault. Mm. And so that's where the leaders have to step up and pay attention to what are they actually doing instead of what are they saying. I think also there's a mistake that managers can can make, can certainly fall into the trap, that when they're implementing change, that they, they see resistance as somehow a negative. Yes. And, and because they give off that, people don't, people stay quiet rather than express themselves. Uh, and, and again, it could be that they, they, they might be able to do a better job of expressing themselves. But I think what we've got to see is that resistance is not negative. It's not a bad thing. It's just part of the process. And if it's not there, you should worry. Well, and what, what managers forget is they go through all of those same transition points, resistance, denial, et cetera, except they do it nine months before because they have to start then planning the change. By the time they get to the day where they're like, here's what we're doing, they've already gone through it. And so when people are like, I don't like this, they're going, what are you talking yeah. about? Yeah, I figured it out for you. Exactly. And so the, you know, uh, Bill Bartlett, uh, our, our colleague out of Chicago, uh, in his book, he talks about permission, protection, and potency, which is the three greatest gifts you can give to your people. It's the same thing in change, right? Give them permission to resist. Give them permission. Let them say, I don't like this and protect them. So when they do say, I don't like this, it's not shut up and get, you know, start rowing in this direction. This is the way we're going to go. It's great. Help me understand why. I love it. Why do you, why do you not? And then potency is the tools to support them through the transition. And some of them may never make it. Got it. Permission, protection, and potency. Potency. Yeah. Two very quick questions before I finish up with you, Hamish. Uh, one is, as you look back in your years in sales, biggest lesson. Get out of your own way. What do you mean by that? Well, um, I'm competitive, I'm disciplined, um, I'm a fairly direct individual, and uh, you know, call it I have some, some hard edges, uh, and that works for some people, uh, it doesn't work for others, and so sometimes, uh, and as I reflect back, I can think of many, many examples of, I had someone who was completely bought into working with me and my company, and something I said or did pushed them away. And it was because I was thinking about myself instead of about them. Mm. But it's hard to do that. It's hard to constantly adapt and adjust to other people's way, preferred ways of doing things. There it are it is. You want to just be yourself, and that's not always for everybody. But uh, exactly. I, what, what I can say without any doubt is you're a master of what you do, and anybody would be fortunate enough to have you as their coach or trainer. Well, thank you very much, Paul. Appreciate that. Hamish, final question. Where can people, how can people get in contact with you? So uh, best way is off of my website, hamish.sandler.com. Uh, we're also on social media. Um, all of our handles are Sandler Hamish. Uh, so we're on Twitter and Instagram and we post regularly. Um, and then uh, you can find my books on the Sandler store, on Amazon in Canada, the US and the UK. Um, so that's the best way to, to track me down and track my books down. Fantastic. Hamish, as, as always, 
so insightful and so generous with your time. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on, Paul. Take care. My pleasure.